0: The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time.
1: Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. We have a a special episode ahead uh, with a special guest, Mario Sibeli. I think all of you listening will enjoy it. It's going to be timely, also timeless, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, So, Elliot, why don't I uh, have you introduce uh, Mario and set the stage for our discussion?
0: Great. Thanks, John. And thanks, Mario, for joining. I'm excited to have uh, Mario on for his second appearance on This Week in Intelligent Investing. we had been having some conversations offline about what's been happening in the market lately. Um, And I thought it would be really helpful to record uh, some of these topics that we've touched on. Mario has been a mentor to me and has immense experience navigating Especially in the small and mid cap space, through some pretty choppy environments, much like we've we're experiencing right now. Um, and I thought, you know, like John said, there could be some timeless uh, wisdom that's imparted through this all. And I thought it would be helpful for everyone else to to get a lens into Mario's thinking. So thank you for joining, and uh, looking forward to this. Maybe yeah. thanks for, for having yeah, me. Yeah, my pleasure. So so to start, maybe talk about the environment in general. And like when you think back on your past experiences, what you think it's most comparable to?
2: Yeah, you know, I've been, um, you know, reaching back to the kind of 1998, 2000 through 2003 time period. And I, and I do feel that we've, you know, the current market dynamics are, are very much reminding me of that period, which was, you know, I think, a pretty fruitful one for, um, you know, for stock picking. Um, But I I guess uh, this week, you know, over the past week, I've I just I've um, I did a little tweet storm about it, kind of essentially, you know, companies should start assuming, and 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 therefore the investors in these companies, and you know, and 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 growth companies are ground zero for for the the weakness in in the market here. The reinforcements aren't coming. There's no fast rescue plan. You know, companies are going to have to figure out a way to to help themselves the faster they figured that out the faster they realize that the better off you know all the stakeholders will be so you know i guess if we were flowing the conversation from there to, to start that would be you know the first observation uh i made to some extent you know what happened um it, you know after the dot com uh crash where um know i am kind of generalizing a bit in 1998 i'd say there was a you know small cap value um, implosion that created a lot of great opportunities. And, you know, after the dot-com crash, I would say small caps in general across value and growth got very interesting. Um, but essentially, there was a vast oversupply of of, of small cap companies available available for sale, um, kind of post Q1 2000. And uh, I went back I looked in detail and, you know, that really lasted for three quarters in 2000, all four quarters of 2001 and then three quarters in 2004. And, you know, I distinctly remember now, you know, in, in Q4 of 2002, you you again were chasing shares. The supply demand had come into balance. A number of factors over the prior uh, period had. Um, sopped up a lot of the excess supply of these shares you had crossover buyers come in you had strategic MA, you had management buyouts you had insider insider buys uh share repurchases you had activists target these companies you know and then again it, it, it lasted for some period of time but by by the fourth quarter of 2002 and first quarter of 2003 you were kind of chasing shares again and flows had reversed and it created a multi-year Kind of tailwind, and the opportunity was largely gone. It, it remind this period reminds me of that, and I would say, you know, this period is 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 really characterized by, you know, uh, you know, absolute destruction in the bid for for growth equities, small and mid. Um, and I think we're in the process of uh, sorting that out once again. And it will take some time, but I'd say it's it's naive to think and companies shouldn't be certainly shouldn't be preparing for, you know, a quick re-emergence of a a bid for growth equities, that they should start planning uh, accordingly, that this may last for some time. And what, if anything, can they do in the meantime to improve shareholders' um, relative positioning so they emerge stronger? Um, And, you know, can they do things that, you know, lessen the time to, to break even, enhance profitability, uh, repurchase shares and you know, more shares at a very opportunistic price, not just offsetting, say, stock-based compensation. Um, I, I do think we're in a period like that and, and management teams need to pay attention on that. Now I have floated this, this to, to multiple um, companies in our portfolio and discussed it. And I, and I do think companies are beginning to get on board, beginning to understand um, that, you know, again, there's there's no rescue boats coming. You know what? They're going to have to get to shore themselves. They're going to have to figure out how to do it on their own.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point because for the last five years, basically, maybe even more, some would say, growth was rewarded to invest in growth. And a lot of companies were, yeah, I mean, and investors alike were pointing to, hey, Amazon built this immense scale having never made a profit. So we're going to do the same thing. And you mentioned this, uh, like supply-demand dynamic, that happened in ninety-eight, two thousand, and again, probably more recently, where you had a lot of these SPACs and a lot of uh, equities coming to market, um, and effectively, you know, there there were clearly some companies hiding, uh, who were not necessarily good on the unit economic basis, uh, hiding the fact that they were kind of crummy companies that were saying we invest in growth by us. Um, But, you know, how do you separate the baby from the bathwater and how do you get management teams to start listening to this idea that the market environment has changed and they should start thinking a little differently about what to do from here?
2: Well, you know, separating the baby from the bathwater, that's what you and I and everyone else gets paid for, you know? Um, So, you still have to find quality companies. You know, there's plenty of growth companies that are still overvalued in this market. You know, and and, and and as a general rule, I would tend to stay away from SPACs. You know, you're looking for seasoned companies that have been through the ringer, um, that are beat up, that you know, have potentially still great and wonderful prospects. You know, the, the 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 overvalued SPAC that put out you know faulty projections that you know is brand new. Brand new entrant to the public markets. You know, I'm 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 tend to be less interested in those kinds of things. So, you know, I'm I'm assuming that um that that you know you're able to discern between quality and, and lack of quality in these kinds of businesses. Um, for starters, what was the second part of the? question you you asked or what did you say you said yeah,
0: something so, i mean the second part was really the broader part which is like companies have been trained to invest in growth for these last few years and that's what they were rewarded for so like the good companies who'd done that and had been rewarded accordingly are facing some pains right now so how do you get them to open their mind to changing what had been working for the last half decade to maybe even decade in some cases
2: yeah. You know, that, that, it gets down to, you know, your, your relationship with the management team, what kind of temperament you have, you know, look at, you know, I, I talked to a company today and I, you know, my, my, my words of wisdoms were, you know, what, run, run the activist playbook before they run it for you. Uh, that's a very good uh, cure for keeping an activist away to kind of do things that make sense for the, uh, for the shareholders. This, this is, this is a time where difficult decisions have to be made. You know, I look across many companies in my portfolio, and some have very difficult decisions to be made that would enhance value. Some less so. Some would have opportunities to, uh, you know, en- enhance value or do something differently. You know, the idea, oh, hey, hey, here's this sub- subsidiary. We need to own 100% of it. We acquired it a few years ago. Now you don't need to own 100% of it. Maybe you should. Merge that with another business and take a stake back. And that combined business is way more valuable than the two of these other businesses competing separately. You don't have to own hundred percent of that. Everything kind of needs to be on the table here. Um, you know, granted, if you have two classes of shares, you could, you could um, really ignore the shareholders and do it exactly what you want. But even there, there's a price to pay because, you know, if, if, if a two class share structure gets the reputation that this team and board really doesn't care about the shareholders, Well, how do you think that what, what's the bid for that equity going to be in this market? It's not going to be that much. Then, you know, then when it comes to attracting and retaining talent, it just got that much harder. And you, and the dilution that the the control shareholders would have to suffer to, 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 to to hire new talent is more than it would otherwise. So it's like, ignore that at your own peril. So even control situations, you know, that have, you know, a dramatically different equity cost of capital, well, there's a price to pay. So I would say, you know the companies need help have the conversations talk to them about it make suggestions and you know if a team is burying their head in the sand on um on, on ideas for enhancing value and accelerating value like then you know maybe there's a better management team maybe someone else should be given the ball here it's just it's you don't go through this kind of correction you know with a bunch of growth investors with no you know ramifications right the it's that that's the thing, you know. You know, you look at the valuation, the stocks are down, you know. Yes, th- there's reactions. You know, we're the sh- a lot of growth investors on one of them have been getting their teeth kicked in. It's painful. Um, you know, I, I I want the management teams to respond to this new environment. It's not an unreasonable thing. I'm not saying I'm not asking for them to do stupid things. I'm not asking them to react to every tick in the marketplace. But if I get if I can get a management team to agree that that this is probably the environment that's going to be around for a little bit. If they agree to that, then let's start talking about what we can do to potentially enhance the value, to pull value forward. You know, we we do you want a management team here saying, "Hey, you know, you know the environment hasn't changed really. We're going all in and accelerating the losses in this one division and you know the profit pool is pretty distant, but it's going to be a big profit pool." You know, good luck with that. That that may not go over so well with your shareholders. So I I do think, um, yeah. You know, for me personally, like we're long-term investors, but are we looking harder at our portfolio companies, saying, "Well, what could we do in the interim to improve our 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 positioning?" And you know, if you have no answers for that, and you're being provided some some really good ideas, and none of them make any sense to that team, again, then I would question, "Well, what?" What's your objective, Mr. Man, Mr. CEO and Mr. Board member? What's your objective here? So, you know, you you gotta be uh, you gotta turn on the charm, Elliot. Smile a little bit, make some friends, and then you know, I don't know, no response whatsoever. Maybe some activist shows up at your door with some some ideas
0: that will appeal to the shareholders. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. You mentioned a few good tools, and it's you know something to reflect on. How when things are going well, a lot of companies, especially you know, I'm a smaller investor in the grand scheme of things, um, don't have that much scale. That when I call, ask for a call, I get the call per se. But um, and I, I think it's not just me, but some medium and larger size companies who are growthier in name and not in a great place right now uh, had been dumbing their nose up at investors and not necessarily. Talking as enthusiastically or as openly, nor disclosing exactly what they should be to paint the right picture about their business. Um, and you mentioned something about like increased disclosure. So you think you think companies are going to start doing that on their own, or do you think it takes a little pressure? How do you think that changes the playing field for people out there?
2: Well, I, I think you're trying to get me to talk about a specific company when you say disclosures, and I'll and I'll talk a little bit, which.
0: You know no, I'm talking more generally because I think I, I, I could name like th- maybe a dozen companies that fit that bill right now.
2: OK, we won't we won't name a uh, big cap fintech player that probably should have better disclosure and I think is working on better disclosure. OK, we'll leave, we'll, we'll leave that one. Uh, put that one aside for now. Um, yeah, I, well, look, I think, uh, you know, this is uh, every company is unique. Every situation is different. Um, You know, with, with certain companies, I think way more disclosure is called for and makes sense and is a fair way to treat investors. Investors ultimately want to feel as if they're true partners in the business. And if your disclosures are such that they don't feel that way, well, that's not a good dynamic. Other companies are just they're more concrete things. This should be done. That should be done. Why aren't we managing expenses better? How come margins haven't gone up in the past two years? Uh, you're you're giving me, um, you know, pro forma earnings. Well, stock-based compensation is a it's a real expense. How come we're not leveraging that line? So every company is something different. You know, some companies, um, you know, clearly have you know there's clear moves that have nothing to do with disclosure that they should do to to enhance value. Share repurchases. I've had that conversation with a number of companies. Um, so I, it's hard to say. Uh, I, I would say actually. My opinion is is that you know additional disclosure is kind of that's not the um, average conversation that I'm having with people. It's really more about actions rather than disclosure. Um, but certainly, I, I have some companies where um, that they have not done a wonderful job of of sharing information um, with the owners. And yeah, you're right. When you share, you know, when 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 your share price is going up and to the right. Um, there, there tends to be some complacency on uh, on on both sides, management boards, you know, and 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 the shareholders, and and that's kind of
0: quickly evaporated here, you know, especially
2: for 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 growth companies.
0: Yeah, and you know, beyond that, you spoke about some other things. I've been trying to break down the universe of of growthier stocks, and you know, my portfolio and things on the outside looking in into effectively three kinds of situations. Those companies who have an opportunity to go from having invested full throttle into growth and actually show margin today, so where you could get rising profitability very quickly in the near term, maybe midterm. Um, So that's bucket one, bucket two, those companies who are in position to meaningfully shrink their share count where they've had You know, maybe not quite an optimized balance sheet, a lot of cash, good cash flow already, um, and the capacity to, uh, you know, even well beyond kind of keeping share count flat, SBC to actually take out shares very quickly. And then the third are those companies who are in position where um, a falling share price makes themselves vulnerable to the uh, MA environment where. Even with a dual share class st- structure, they might become um, someone that that gets sought after in, in a different way. Um, how do you think about each of those three things and what's going on now? And you know how, how should that play out from here, looking for companies to do some of those uh, things? The, I know the third bucket companies can't do, but the acquirers, you think the acquirers out there are sitting ready to act or you think that's part of what takes some more time to play out here?
2: Well, you know, the reaction time is not instantaneous. And I, I suppose you could put, you know, you know, M&A is probably the last thing that happens. Share repurchases can happen faster. Than that kind of internal things that could happen would, would tend to happen faster. Disclosure, you know, could come, you know, relatively quickly. Um, but, you know, I think those buckets are all, you know, all, all valid. You know, I don't necessarily have those... I haven't really thought about it on, you know, which bucket, you know, did these things um, fall into. But I would say um, the, this growth correction, you know, it's kind of been sneaking up since July, you know, and then December got, you know, you know, it was, a, it was a tough period, you know, and I would have, you know, my expectations were that, you know, that the things that were kind of most beat up last year might see a little bit of a bid this year that turned about turned out to be completely wrong. So I think it's it's set in, it's starting to set in that this is the environment. It is not it, it is going to be here for a while. We have to learn how to live here. It's a little bit different than we've experienced before. But if some other company makes the transition faster and it's competing with you and gets a better valuation, you know, that's the whole competitive thing. And maybe they're going to bid for you. Maybe you're going to be taken out. It's there is some. There there should be advantages that accrue to companies that figure out uh, this uh, faster than others. And, yeah, you know, there's always a buy versus build decision, you know, uh, that larger companies would would contemplate. It certainly happened back in 2000, 2003, 100 percent. You know, why, you know, a a rational management team is is not only going to build things, it has to consider buying them along with building to to not to to not do so would be irrational. And so you 100% you, you have some very strategic, very interesting platforms and assets sitting out here right now, you know, with with not a whole lot of interest in it. And you know, someone could always, you know, someone could say, Oh, look, the PE is pretty high, or they don't have any earnings yet. Yeah, but there's some companies that are going to have a high level of future earnings. No one's paying for those earnings right now. I mean, we're, you know, we have a whole generation of growth investors that are unlearning to pay for things, and that's good. You know, that there needs to be some balance restored. But not every company has to earn a lot of money to be sitting on top of a very super strategic, interesting platform. So I absolutely think through a variety of uh, mechanisms that this vast oversupply of growth shares that are floating around the street now. That's going to get sopped up. It will. It 100% will. I don't know how long it'll take. And certainly, some of them are very compelling longs, and plenty of them are crap companies that aren't going to get much done. Um, but yeah, I it, I think that the the, the clock's ticking. Um, there will be moves, um, and I don't think we have to wait forever to see them. Now, some stability in the capital markets, you know, is a plus when it comes to M&A and uh lbo's um so you know we, we need some some stability there for for, for things to occur but yeah 100 that was one of the that was one of the uh one of the mechanisms that kind of stopped up all those shares that were in oversupply in 2000 through 2002 and it, it, it will be one of the mechanisms this time it's kind of this weird dynamic i mean you could you know like oh that's a huge premium look how big that premium is like oh That's not a huge premium. That's the September price, you know, like huge premium, but that's a September price. We're in that dynamic now and management teams are, you know, some of them are going to, some of them are going to make moves 100%.
0: Yeah. That's been one of the crazy things for me about this environment, seeing how everything's become one trade. And I think one of the important points that you've impressed on me through this is how, you know, before companies didn't really have to do anything, but now companies could take some of their fate in their own hands and could do some of these actions. um, Like you said, preempt the activist playbook, um, where when things are going well, they just don't have to think about that sort of stuff. But now, you know, this comes into critical questions, especially for growth companies who still need to hire to achieve their ambitions, who still need to keep their employees happy and prevent atrophy. um, That it's not just about Shareholders as well. It's about you know achieving their core business objectives, and there's a reflexivity involved that'll uh, inspire action. So they're more amenable and more open to thinking about uh, what to do. Like the right companies are in this environment, and I've found that to be a very interesting point.
2: Yeah, I look. I've 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 had three or four conversations, and I'm going to be having more on this. And you know, generally speaking, they're they're going pretty well. you know, and I, I, think I've had universal agreement that um, that this is the new environment. You know, our job is to create value for shareholders. This is the new environment. We have to figure out, you know, uh, effective ways of doing that. You know, and that flows right to us with the you know the funds we manage for investors. Um, you know, people are expecting um, companies to figure out a way. To, uh you know survive and, and thrive you know even though the environment's tough and I think um, that, that there there are more tools to do that than than before um, with, you know with with the valuations becoming wrecked you know the, essentially our jobs the same you know you you know you want to create value and you want to create more value than the next guy um, next person I should say, and, um, you know, if 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 everyone's going down fifty percent and you come down twenty five percent, you know, and then on the ups, you know, you you're kind of beating on the ups. Well, you've done a really good job in a in a tough environment. So companies, um, companies are, are going to have to to sort through this, you know, and their relationship with their shareholders um, and how they interact with the capital markets. You know, it, is very important. The we we've just we, we have just had a, a fairly dramatic repricing of equity capital across a lot of companies, right? That can't be ignored. We have to think about it. It's like if you had a mortgage, you know, if you have a mortgage on your house, your mortgage repriced by 40%. Are you, you going to do nothing? It's nothing at all, really? Maybe you don't take that vacation. Maybe you cut that expense out. Maybe you do something different. So you kind of have your nut covered. So, I mean, this this is a, a fairly big thing, and I, and the, the companies that get there first and shareholders should should try to help them along the way. Um, it's just going to be better for everyone that way. There's 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 not a lot not there's not enough life jackets, you know, on the boat for everyone. So it's it's time to make some tough calls at companies. Uh, they really have to do it, and they they ought to be doing it and thinking about it um, when when they have. Um, more control of the situation. Uh, I, I think it's that is much preferable to um, someone coming in over the top and critiquing them. look you could even like you could have two classes of shares and have full control of the company but you could have you know you could have critics and it just doesn't serve anyone well. so I do I do think this this cuts across single class and dual class shares um, you know if the dual class companies feel strongly, about doing a good job for shareholders, they'll act as if they had a single class of shares. And and you know that that remains to be seen. Who who will act that way and who and who doesn't? But there's a price to pay. There's a price to pay if you bury your head and you pretend your cost of equity capital hasn't moved here at all.
0: Yeah, that's a huge point. I, I think one of the things that's interesting is I, I can't remember which company. We already did see one company collapse their A and B shares. You think that's gonna Be something that that happens more with some of these companies, where where they'll be proactive. And do you think any of them? I I mean, I've seen at least one company who has founder control, but they still seem to be acting on the activist playbook. Do you think some of them just start wanting to listen to this organically?
2: Yeah, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the dual classes more recently, um, you know, have automatic sunset provisions after ten years, or you know, maybe if the the, the, the B shares become a certain and lower percentage of the overall shares that there's an automatic conversion. I think those things are reasonable, they're, they're, they're pretty good. The permanent structures of dual class, you know, I tend not to like as much though, you know, quite honestly, some of those structures are in the hands of very trustworthy and honest people that, that do a good job with it. But I think over very long periods of time, dual permanent classes, you know, is not really a, uh, an optimal uh, situation. So you know, I guess I, I wouldn't make a prediction that the dual classes will you know uh, uh, purpose on purpose collapse. And I guess I brought it up more just to say that um, if if a, a company with a dual class of shares and a cheap equity thinks it's uh, you know safe because it really doesn't have to answer to shareholders, all I'm simply saying is that there are other prices to pay. And if if you if you have the ignored equity, it, it, it comes you know to bite you in the butt in, in, in other ways. So to some extent, even the duels you know, have to pay attention um, to, to to their share price. And in, in, in an idealistic world, um, th- they're acting as if they don't have a dual share class. That's a little bit unnatural, but I think some people some people do that and get that.
1: Maybe uh, Mario, I can jump in just with a with a thought or a question on companies that. Um, are self-funding in terms of their growth plans versus others that'll have to go back to the markets. I feel like maybe um, a, a clear distinction should be drawn there um, because you know, let's say you're a company that's gonna be able to self-fund the growth plan, and you've had a plan in place for the last you know couple of years. Um, you know, does it make sense to really give the market so much credit and and say, well, you know? The market's right that now all of our comp- all of these comps are worth half of what they were six months ago, so we should pull back on the growth spend. I mean, if the numbers bear it out, um, why not just keep uh, executing the plan?
2: Well, you know, again, every situation for every company is a little bit different. I mean, look, Amazon's put up you know, show me quarters. they are like, yeah, we can t- we could we could show leverage if we want. You know, we prefer to keep growing, but they've done that from time to time. And if Amazon does that from time to time, you know, then other companies might consider doing that from time to time, especially a smaller or, or, or medium-sized company. And, you know, again, every situation is different. And so it could it could make sense with certain companies that there's very, you know, a very limited reaction to the, you know, to the new cost of equity capital. With, with other ones, that, that might be less true. Um, so if, you know, look, if a, if, if a company um, is reliant, you know, on on outside financing to, to get to its business model, like they should be paying, you know, pretty close attention here. And I'll look and then you have these, you know, crossover kind of funds where they, you know, might take a convertible preferred and an opportunistic time with some board seats and that, and, you know, that's dilution for the common shareholders, you know. So in a situation where um, capital is needed, maybe there's a Strategic or semi-strategic, or you know, a branded financial partner that can come in and lend stability, get on board. Um, there's some dilution there, and 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 maybe they get a yield that the common shareholders don't. But some of those transactions, you know, might make sense. You know, better yet might be um, companies that that are perceived to need outside financing but get much more competitive. They need less of it or, you know, their ramp, they make their runway longer than people expected. Those are those are value enhancing things. So they make tough decisions. They make tough calls. and They find out a way to extend their runway before they need that capital or or even eliminate it by getting rid of some division or doing something that, you know, was kind of a um, you know sidebar for them. You know, there's you don't want to be a conglomerate in this market, you know. And we actually own a kind of couple conglomerates, I'd say, because they're being heavily discounted in this marketplace. You know, and I would look at them and say, well, maybe that one division, maybe that shouldn't be there anymore. Maybe that should be spun off. Or your share price is so low. I don't really care about that division at all. Make it go away. Sell it. And those are, you know, you you could change the, the, you know, the trajectory here on time to, you know, to raise pretty dramatically. Those are those are big, important decisions. I think some companies are going to get that um, sooner than uh, than others. Um, and then, you know, the CEO that has to own 100% of this business or 100% of the whole thing, it could be that a trade makes sense, you know, a, a combination. And someone, one CEO is going to lose their job, but a combination to make a stronger competitor that's competing against some some incumbents. Like, who wants to hear about ego in this environment? Put your ego aside. You have a lot of overhead. Collapse the overhead, put these two together. And I got a real, I got a really interesting company now that can go out and compete against some incumbents. Now I own less of that business than I did before, but I have a better business. Why not? All these things should be on the table. And that's why, you know, i continue to emphasize every single company is different here. I don't have one set of recommendations, um, you know, for all the companies other than, Um, You know, uh, recognize the rules have changed, adjust to the new realities of the marketplace. And then lastly, most importantly, get back, refocus on the number one objective to shareholders, creating value for them. You know, I don't I don't necessarily care how you do it or if you dilute me um, in, in an intelligent manner or I end up owning shares of another company create value for me that's your job that's what you're paid for you're not just paid to you know expand your organization so you can hand out more stock based comp to employees and have you know reign over a larger larger organization all these things need to be on the table they really do
0: yeah interesting so we've talked a lot about what companies should do maybe we should talk a little bit about the role of the portfolio manager right so everything's been one trade in this market. There are lots of beating down, beating down names. I'm curious, how do you think about something like? Do you broaden your aperture and increase the number of names in your book, or do you shrink it and focus on a few where there could be a difference? Like, how do you think about uh, diversification right now?
2: Yeah, we're definitely broadening because you know I think I can you know I can own multiple things that kind of have the same upside. If I have five things, you know, with roughly the same upside as the one thing. Um, You know that that diversification makes all the sense in the world. Um, so yeah, that we as a, you know our, our portfolio is adding more names. So that means we're we are selling some names that we hate to sell, but we have you know highly, highly weighted positions in them. Um, but we're there's so many I think there, there's so many interesting names uh, in small to mid growth right now that that it does make sense to. Um, Divide up the portfolio uh, and expand the the total number of names. You know, um, I wrote one thing down. It's a little bit tongue in cheek, but I was like, you know, why would anyone buy a growth equity here? We were talking about this just the other day. If you, if you get something right, you may not get rewarded, or you get rewarded in the short term, but a couple of days later, it's lower than that price. So wait. Even if I win, if even I get you know get something right here, I got a lower stock price. If I get something wrong, I'm going to get my butt kicked. Um, why in the world would I, would I buy a small growth equity right now? It just, it doesn't make any sense. So we're training a lot of people not to buy things right now.
0: So why, why would anyone buy growth equity right now, Elliot? <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, contrarian instincts, but I know exactly what you're talking about, where a good earnings um, might be rewarded for a day, if that, and uh, it's probably lower by now than it was at the time of report. And uh, bad earnings is getting absolutely walloped. you know, something like bad earnings with rising investment, you're getting a 20% plus downside. Um, so I do, I, I do sense that. And I do have seen a couple of uh, growth investors talk about energy stocks these days. So, you know, you also get that sort of, um, you find out who's a momentum trader and who's interested in like analyzing the true intrinsic value of a business.
2: But you didn't answer my question. Why would anyone buy a growth equity here, Elliot?
0: Right. I, I mean, I don't know how to answer your question as best as possible. But <laughs> I'll quote Buffett, right? Growth and value are tied at the hip. So as long as you could justify the value, um, you're going to step in. But you are being conditioned right now. I mean, I've heard a lot of people say, I had a conversation last night with a friend about a stock that I think is way too cheap right now. And he's like, I love it. I'm really interested in it. I don't think I could step in front of this momentum right now. Um and I, you know, I have an answer. To, yeah, go for it. Why would anyone
2: buy a growth equity <laughs> right now in this market? Because some of these companies are outstanding, and they offer the opportunity for significant long-term appreciation. Just like how you know back early two thousands know, when I was kind of messing around with Netflix, Expedia, like absolute home runs. Some of these companies, not all of them, some of these companies. Are going to be huge winners from here, and you're paying a lot less than you were a short time ago. And many of them are continuing to grow, so the valuation has really uh, dramatically lowered in a relatively short period of time, too. Because no one really knows where the bottom is. And if you're trying to guess exactly where the bottom is, you stand a very good chance of missing out on the eventual upside. That's why you would step in front of this train. That's why. That doesn't mean you won't lose money tomorrow, but that's why certain people are doing it. That's why we're doing some of it, uh, doing more of it, um, because there's some pretty big prizes out there right now. And you want to get interested in these companies, you know, when there's blood on the street. People were enamored with growth a year ago, absolutely enamored, and two years ago. And here they are. Here we are, finally, some real pain, some real Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And yeah, there's a certain part of the population that won't step in front of these names, that have been trained not to, are thinking about energy or worried about macro, all these things. Yeah, all these things are present. They may go down more. Um, but y- you're going to find real bargains when there's fear like this. There's, again, I have my cat, I'm sitting here with my cash. My cash is very, very valuable right now, and I feel very safe with it. I have some cash, not a lot in the portfolio. And there's all these people that want are waving those certificates at me, trying to get me to buy them, trying to get you and I to look at them. And they have to offer us some pretty wild discounts to get us to to part with, with our cash. There's a lot of these companies out there. So there's a lot of supply of these companies, a tremendous amount. It's just, it's not going to last forever. It, I, you know, mark my words. I don't know how long it takes, but these shares are going to get sopped up one way or the other now again i'm not not every spac is going to get a bid from a private equity firm um or someone else but a, a lot of really good companies here have just been murdered and it's it's the time you ought to be looking at them is when no one really wants to own them and the fear is high and you know look it's 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 been painful to get down here you know um i, I have to acknowledge that it's been a, you know challenging tough period for uh, a lot of growth managers you know we're included in that um but if you assess things you know without emotion where we stand today i I just think there's you know a, a tremendous amount of bargains out there um companies that that are are going to do some great things um and you can get them for way less than you could you know a short you know Short time ago,
0: well, I think that's a damn good answer. And it's interesting to think about how we've all been told buy low, sell high from the first day we got interested in stocks. And we all know and internalize the idea that behaviorally it's much harder to do than um you know the saying suggests. And here we are with the opportunity that many people would have wanted. And you do see a lot of people running from it, talking scared, feeling terrible. Part of it is when, like you acknowledged, we're all um, taking some lumps along the way. It's a little harder to build the temerity to go out and just get it. But it's you know, exactly uh, one of the fundamental rules of this all is that the opportunity set has better forward returns from here than it did from up there. Um, and there's no way around that.
2: Yeah, 100% it's a very it's a vicious cycle right now for sure, but it won't last forever. It didn't this time. Um, and you know some of the companies um, are, are gonna get with with the times and they're gonna start doing smart things and they're gonna they're gonna push back and turn turn the tide against um, this absolute decimation <laughs> in growth equity prices. Uh, So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been brutal. It's about as brutal of a period as, as I've been through and we don't own all growth stocks. We have some value names in it and we've certainly gotten some things wrong, you know, over the past uh, 12 months, but uh, the opportunity set is as high as I've seen it, I think since 2000, 2003. And that's a, that's a long stretch. There's certainly been a lot of opportunities in between um but it's it's about as high as it's been for a while and this will eventually create you know uh, a tailwind under small and mid growth again and you know absolute reversal of um of, of fund flows and you know all, all these cycles will start up again they always repeat themselves uh, i i guess i i guess i wish i was better at timing them and and knowing how to take full advantage of it I'm, I'm really just a i'm a stock picker and portfolio manager um that's it
1: well one interesting wrinkle uh, for me also when you talk about you know some of these stock prices being down so much is if you have a company that is actually buying back its own stock um you kind of like that the price has come down i mean there are a few companies um let's say twitter tencent uh, music entertainment maybe facebook that are big buyers of their own stock and uh, as a shareholder you want them to go through a period like this where they can pick up you know as much as uh, 50% or 100% more shares for the same uh, amount of money yeah that's right you know look uh- Warren
2: Buffett says a lot of these things very very well. You know, per share value, um, you know, is more important than the overall value. So, you know, certainly the creative share repurchases can make sense. You know, look, I would say growth companies in in general probably are somewhat biased against returning capital because they're all about raising capital, you know, for for most of, of their existence. Um, but but seasons change things change. The season has changed here. So, you know, could we have more tech companies kind of um, not buying shares back to offset dilution, but to, to be shrinking share count at accretive prices. You know, all that really means is that a couple of years from now when the share price recovers, you're at a higher price than you would have been otherwise. I don't know. Like it's, it's pretty simple. Like if you're buying it back at less than intrinsic value, strategic value, book value, but some accretive value, you're, you're rewarded for that me out years and I do think you know a lot of a lot of times there's a bias against doing that you know in, in growth companies and MA is adding more skill sets new skill sets and different kinds of muscle is more interesting. But I think a really good team is you know a buyback is a tool. You know all, all, it's a tool. And I I would tend to want to use and think about all the tools in my toolbox to enhance value. All of them. Um, so you know Get, get on board with that, including growth companies.
0: And then, you know, from the manager's perspective, right? So I asked you about diversification, but, you know, how do you think about turnover and velocity of ideas in a time like this? Like, how do you create opportunities or look for opportunities to recycle capital too?
2: Oh, uh, it's really interesting. I, you know, so just prior, uh, since we knew I was going to do the podcast, I kind of look back at my portfolio you know, in 1998, kind of through 1990, uh, 1998 through 2004. And I did have more positions on and I, you know, I had only one analyst kind of, well, early, early on, I had zero analysts supporting me. I was the analyst of BM and then I kind of had one that was helping me. The the amount of names was just funny. Like I had 25 to 30 names and, you know, that's a lot of names to kind of be informed on. You know, I, I think part of that really was um, that they that there was more more overt cheapness, things that looked interesting. It was easier. You know, I didn't you didn't have to build a full model and dive into things and have 50 calls with the management team. You know, things were cheap, you know, and you had to act fast and you could kind of pencil it out you know, relatively quickly. So there there were I had more total names in the portfolio. Um and then, you know, look, uh, we're long-term oriented, um, as I think you are, Elliot. And um, that that is is what I'm comfortable with. At the same time, who's not looking to put some points up on the board with a management team that is doing things in the near term? That's helpful. So I also had more turnover in, in um, that portfolio back then. I had way more M&A than I have now. We had tons of names get taken out all the time. And then you would just recycle that cash or those securities right back into the next thing. So I had more turnover in in that period and more names than I've kind of had in ensuing periods. And I, you know, I kind of think we're getting back to that. So it's it's an interesting topic. I sort of touched on there a little bit, which is, you know, long-term investing. You know, 100% makes sense. Great, Um, but I do think um, that looking for opportunities where there's some acceleration of that same value or the possibility of something better in the near term or things getting better or you know a buyback to put a floor underneath it like those things become you know frankly more attractive in this market when things are just going down and down and down and down and I and i I recalled I, I remember I said this back in like 2001 or something like that to my analysts, and it's just stuck around in my head and I remembered it which is um, when we were looking around for for all these different names, we're like, you know, doubles or a dime a dozen. Like this thing could double in, you know, in two to three years. Doubles everywhere. So then I just remember um, telling the guy, his name was Ryan, Ryan, you know, we, we got to start looking for triples. Let's look for, the, forget the doubles. There's too many doubles. Let's wear the triples. Or let's look for the doubles with a catalyst. And, you know, y- y- your ability to get pickier and to demand more of these companies you know who want good long-term shareholders, want thoughtful shareholders. You could ask for more from them. Um, so it, that was a interesting dynamic that I got reminded about. You know, in, in preparing a bit for for uh, speaking with with you two today, that um, that the your your output as a portfolio manager may kind of look different in this period than it than it than it has more recently, and I think that's perfectly. Uh, perfectly valued. It does not mean that you're no longer a long-term oriented shareholder, but you get to be pretty discerning here, and you might be more attracted to teams that are open and honest with the shareholders and trying to improve the situation. You know, versus other teams that are like, well, here's our game plan. You know, you guys just take a back seat. We got it from here. I'm like, your 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 shares are down. You know, 50 percent, right? People are putting negative value on this money-losing business. So, you know, don't, again, same message, can't ignore that stuff. Mr. Management Team, Mr. CEO, Ms. Mrs. CEO.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. It's something I've been thinking about a lot in general. I feel like the environment has moved so quickly since the COVID crash. You know, I think everything, like we've had several cycles play out within a very short span of time and I've I'm long term oriented as you said I've historically kept my turnover very low less than 20% just about every year I've been doing this except for 2020 um, and decently lower than 20% in a bunch of the years and I feel like that had led me you know a predisposition in action will always be the case but um there's certain environments where when things move faster that is what you should be thinking about um if a couple of years of returns get pulled forward quite quickly you should be thinking about doing something a little different um, yeah let
2: me let me tell you one little quick story it's funny it occurred to me just just now small cap were decimated you know in that 2000 you know 2001 2002 period um both growth and value and i and i always kind of wanted to be switch hitter you know growth and values so and i you know i got into the growth companies at that period i've Kind of talked about that or tweeted about that from time to time. Um, so I grew up a value investor, what growth, and kind of been growth and value since. Okay. So there's this one company. It was in New Jersey. It, it, I, it looked really cheap, high return business, um, great balance sheet. Um, you know, it, it, it was a cigar distributor. It was actually, it's still around today. It's called one 800 cigar It was a great high return business that, that was growing. It was a cigar boom. And then bust you know but this guy was the biggest buyer of cigars in the world and so he squeezed everyone out so he managed to have earnings growth um even in the in in this period of, of of you know after cigars went through this little mini boom and then kind of bust and you know and it was trading at some ungodly low multiple it was it was just crazy and they had a great balance sheet and were generating cash so i visited them got to learn the business Um, And it was was a very nice business. So they were a wholesaler, they were a retailer, they sold online. That was the, the internet was just starting back then. And he had had a great business. Um, And he was, he was a nice person and a, and a smart CEO. And so I went in there, I met with him at the end of the meeting. I was like, his name was Lou, Lou Rothman. Lou, you you know, I'm buying your shares. They're dirt cheap. You went public. I think they went public with Merrill Lynch, you know, and I think they were below IPO price. I'm like, you got all this cash. You should buy back stock, just buy back all the stock you can and take it private. And he's like, yeah, okay, interesting, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, I walked out of that that meeting, they announced a buyback, you know, not long thereafter, they were buying back, you know, all the stock they could. Um, and then they went private. And um, I remember, you know, after after the deals, and now as I talked to him, he's like, Do you know after you came into that meeting? Like, we were like, Yeah, that's not a bad idea. We, you know, why don't we do that? And you know, it was just a friendly, regular conversation. We were buying it the whole time. Um, we got a very good return on our investment. We got a premium at the end. He still paid a, he, he got a good deal. He sold to someone else a couple of years later after went private, he had a good deal. And it was just, it, it, it was kind of a funny little story because, you know, I think these kinds of opportunities are, are opening up again. You know, we have one company in the portfolio that, that, that will go unnamed right now that needs to sell some assets real fast. And the stock's gotten so depressed that they just sell one asset, even for a depressed price. It's gonna make all the difference in the world in the valuation of this company. And I'm not gonna go into which company that is, but it it's it just it's just a funny story that this reminded me of. I went in there, had a reasonable conversation. We kind of liked each other. I said, why don't you do this? He did it, you know, and everyone won. And I don't know, like interacting with your companies, talking to them, guiding them through this. You know, um, and and you made some comment before about you know, look, do I think you, you know, you know, if you're Carl Icahn, you're gonna get a you're gonna get a call back from PayPal pretty quickly. Um, You know, if you're someone else and you're calling a larger company, that you know, you you maybe get IR if you're if you're lucky. But I've always felt, you know, that the the quality of one's uh, ideas and work, you know, could magnify the size of uh, of the holdings, and that's certainly kind of I think been true of us. We've we've Tended to punch above our weight, you know, influence-wise. Um, so I would say, you know, not to think about the percentage of the shares uh, that one owns. I would think about: is your idea or suggestion a very good one? Does it deserve to be aired to the senior team and potentially the board? And have we written boards' letters, thoughtful letters? Um, yeah, we have. So I, I. I I think if you spot something, uh, and there's a way for for improvement, um, and, and it, well thought out, you know, you know, if you're complaining on Twitter, you know, tweeting at a CEO that they should be, you know, doing this or that, buying some stock back, or some very specific thing, you know, that's just that's just noise to management team. But if you have really good suggestions in ways to improve the competitive positioning of the company, or a blockbuster merger that no one kind of really thought of or considered, take those things to the team. if they ignore you take them to the board. Um, you, you never know what could happen. I walked in in that little company in New Jersey and you know 18 months later we you know made 50% of our money and got like a 20% premium on the shares we bought the day before the deal. Um, so that that's I think we're in that environment. you know there's no sacred cows here. And if you got a good idea, you take it to the to the team. You take it to the board, uh, and and you get on it. You get on it.
0: Right. It's interesting. Like management teams absolutely pay attention to their stock price. I remember distinctly listening to a CEO talk during an earnings call when their stock was dropping. You heard his tone change. Like he was clearly watching the ticker as he was listening. Not necessarily company. Not necessarily great feature for a CEO, but you know, all these people pay attention. I spoke to a former at a company whose stock is quite volatile. And she was pretty clear about how the CFO would have to tell people, you're never as good as your stock is on a good day, nor as bad on a bad day. But everyone paid attention. And it actually mattered to them. Like they cared. They knew because a lot of their own wealth was tied to it. Um, So I think a big part of what you're saying too, is like, if ever were an environment where they're going to listen, it's right now. If ever were an environment where they'd be eager to hear ideas that are from, you know, maybe outside of their core competency or core, like funnel of ideas. They're more open to it now than ever.
2: Absolutely. 100%. I've I've definitely sensed that. Others probably as well, have as well, you know, the rules have changed. And if the players want to be on the court, they can't ignore them. Simple as that.
0: Yeah, I think one of the clear signs is I do have some teams who hadn't, you you know, like you said, you'd get IR, but now you get the CFO, right? And it's a little different. You can tell that people want to listen and are a little more engaged in a different way. Um, And that does create better dynamics just in general for understanding the business better and knowing it better and getting a sense for what moves the people behind it, uh, let alone opening the door to kind of being suggestivist, if you will.
2: Yeah, the, the, the dynamics have changed, but our job hasn't, you know, our, our job is to, you know, to add as much value as we can. Um, and so it's it's the same. It's, it's the same job as before. The opportunity set is greater. And, you know, um, get out there and, and 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 make your make your suggestions. Surprisingly, you know, you know, look, I've had my own fun for, for a long time. Um, you know, I think sometimes I get pretty good access because I speak very frankly. I think a lot of times, you know, your typical institutional investor that, you know, they might feel one portion separated, one part separated from kind of ownership. Like they, you know, know, I'm talking big, big institutional investors versus someone like me that, you know, I have pretty much all my liquid net worth in the fund. And I, I kind of think, You know, more like an owner maybe than someone that that would have 10 times the position in the in the same fund. So you know, I think unvarnished, unvarnished, um, advice and insights, without necessarily a fear of like, oh, if I say this, that you know, the the team won't want to call me back, I won't hear from them, I won't get access. Like, I'll I'll tell you, I'll tell you what um, your shareholders are thinking that they won't want to say to your face. I'll be I'll be polite. I won't be rude, but I'm going to tell you what probably what they're thinking. Um, so by talking to that kind of shareholder, you're going to get a better view and probably better suggestions than the person that's, you know, it's it's point point seven, five percent of their fund. Um, and they're just in the management fee kind of collection business and they want access to the management team because they got eight other investments that they're getting data from. To monitor this that's that's very different i do think um certain types of shareholders are going to be valued in this marketplace um the the, the new the, the new environment for um you know like helping helping the management teams you know get through this environment you know intact and again you know though you know if, if if you don't do a great job there you know you know maybe Maybe some uh, barbarian comes you know crashing the gates, you know right?
0: <laughs> that seems to be uh, what you could help them preempt in a lot of ways. And it's really interesting to think about, well, Mario, this has been awesome. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, sharing your wisdom and experience. You know, I just hit ten years doing this in January. When I had you on last time, it was uh, your anniversary in this business as well. But, um, you know, for sharing your wisdom, I think it's incredibly valuable for myself, for our audience. Really, really grateful that you joined us here. So thank you.
2: Thanks for having me. I hope hope that uh,
0: some of those insights are helpful. (laughs) Incredibly so. All right. Be well.